Welcome to the Freudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and this month we're going to dig into a trend that is impacting consumers, businesses, government agencies, and other institutions. That trend is the steady growth of cyber criminals using stolen information to commit identity fraud. Identity theft occurs when a person's or business's information is stolen. Identity fraud is when that information is misused, and there's a whole lot of misuse going on these days. At the ITRC, in the final months of 2020, we helped about 750 individuals who were the victims of unemployment identity fraud, which is to say a criminal used their personal information to apply for unemployment benefits in their home state or in other states. On June 2nd, the ITRC surpassed the total number of identity-related unemployment fraud victims for 2020 in only six months, with four months left until the enhanced benefits that are attracting criminals expire. At the root cause of this rise in identity fraud is the billions of bits of personal information available to cyber criminals that can be used to pretend to be just about any adult in the U.S., while that may sound intimidating, there are groups whose mission it is to help prevent information misuse and to ensure people are who they say they are, to ensure benefits and privileges go to the actual person who needs them and not a professional imposter halfway around the world, an organized crime ring, or just your garden variety criminal down the street. Helping us to make sense of how to prevent identity fraud is the ITRC CEO, Eva Velasquez, and Haywood J. Woody Talcove, CEO of LexisNexis Special Services, a leading provider of information used to mitigate risks. So thanks to both of you for being here today. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, James. Look forward to the conversation. Well, let's just start with you, Woody. You know, LexisNexis is familiar if you're a lawyer, if you're a fraud investigator, uh, but what does LexisNexis do to help mitigate risk? Right. Well, we do three primary things. Right? The first is we stop fraud, we help catch bad people, and we enable digital government. And talking specifically about identity fraud or imposter fraud, um, Lexis does over a billion transactions every single day. Wow. And over a billion dollars in fraud each week. We're used by virtually every single financial institution, e-retailer, state, local, and federal governments to ensure that the individuals who are interacting with them are actually who they say they are. Uh, right now, as you noted, these transnational criminal groups from Russia, China, uh, Nigeria, as well as Romania are attacking our UI system at scale. I want to jump over to Eva, for just a second here, and and set a set a backdrop. You know, we've been tracking data breaches and uh, identity crimes at the ITRC for you know close to two decades. Actually, a little more in some cases. A little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what are we seeing different today? What has happened in the last, particularly in the last year with the pandemic? when we've seen as it affects consumers? Well, you know, it's complicated because we have a couple of things going on. And while 
we are focused on victim services for identity crime victims, we're also tracking data breaches because that's what's feeding the problem. I mean, we're absolutely convinced that the previous data breaches have a lot to do with what happened in 2020. Just the sheer number of identity credentials that are out there in the wild from all of those past data breaches, they are what's fueling this mind-boggling number of identity crimes. And and in particular, in the government sector, um, we saw we saw it in 2020 and it's still continuing into 2021. So we put out our data breach report on an annual basis, but we track the trends quarterly. And in 2020, we saw that the overall number of breaches was actually trending down, you know, and everyone wanted to throw a party and go, this is great news. But, uh, you know, we're looking at that going, I think this looks a little more promising than it is. And they're not going away. They're just shifting tactics. So we're starting, we were starting to see the real impact of all those third-party supply chain compromises. But just for context, we categorize those as a single event. So for example, the, the BlackBod breach is, it's only one of the 1,108 that we captured in 2020, but there were 571 organizations and 12 million individuals impacted by just that one incident. And it's it's looking like these supply chain attacks are on pace to surpass malware as the number three cause of data breaches behind phishing and ransomware. And I, I say all of that because, again, that's what's fueling the misuse of these credentials. So victims are walking around. They know that they've been previously impacted by a data breach, but and maybe they've done, taken some steps to mitigate it, but these credentials can be used you know, wherever it's going to be easiest. And I think Woody can attest to this fact, it certainly became lucrative and easy to use it in the state unemployment systems. And so that's where a lot of this fraud went. So that's where you were starting to go, Woody, there, um, before we brought in Eva to kind of set some statistical foundations here. What, 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 are, what is it that's actually happening in government and in business with this rise in ID fraud or, and you were, you used the term imposter. So what is, what are you seeing and, and what do you guys attribute that rise to? Eva is right on point. Um, you know, when she mentioned 571 organizations, 12 million people, I would argue at this point, there isn't a single person in this country over 18 whose data has not been stolen. And what, um, you know, the challenge is these fraudsters have become incredibly sophisticated. Um, you're not dealing with ordinary street criminals. You're dealing with organized groups, many of which are overseas. They're highly sophisticated. And trying to use um, legacy systems that, say, rely on uh a cell phone bill or utility bill or some sort of document, it, it doesn't work anymore. Um, what you have to do is you have to take a, a, you have to put together a system that looks at devices, examines digital exhaust, um, that does email analytics. One of the things that these fraudsters are famous for, in particular, the Russian group, is the tumbling trick, in particular, with uh, using Gmail accounts, and then you've got to use some public record content. Basically, we need to move from an authentication system that looks at documents to a digital lock that validates identity. 
because using those new tools right now stops them. Now, in five years, who knows what's going to happen? Because as sophisticated as companies like Lexus get, the fraudsters continue to evolve because based upon our last research, $250 billion of taxpayer money has been stolen. So uh, to me, what's happened is in government in particular, um, the use of legacy processes and legacy systems has really made them much more susceptible to this type of identity fraud uh, with all the data breaches that Eva has mentioned than, say, in the commercial sector. And, you know, Woody, I just want to comment because not only everything you said is without 1,000% accurate, but it's also having an impact on the individuals. And you said something that I thought was so meaningful when we were just talking a couple of weeks ago, that the government cannot pick their customers. Businesses can, the government can't. And a lot, relying on these foundational identity documents actually disenfranchises and alienates a lot of people and makes it very hard for them to authenticate themselves when they need to get these services. So and aside from the fraud, just the impact on people trying to avail themselves of these services and benefits that they're entitled to, relying on these legacy systems has a huge impact on them as well. Yeah, it, and sometimes that gets lost, right? I mean, the most important thing here, um, particularly in the COVID environment that we're currently in, is to make sure that those individuals that need benefits, uh, that need to be able to pay their rent, that need to put food in their refrigerator to pay their family, can get their benefits quickly and with as little friction as possible. I mean, I've seen personally some of the stories in the press in New York, California, and Florida, where these individuals have been trying for weeks to get their benefits, and they're told they're going to have to wait a little bit longer. To me, that's unacceptable. You know, we're a great country. We can do better. And the new tools that are out there that are offered by companies like Lexus um, do these types of things in milliseconds. You know, for example, with Lexus, 99.4% of the population can be identified without them doing a single thing in a matter of milliseconds. And, you know, it just pains me um, watching the struggle that is going on. Um, you know, you don't have your job. You may be losing your home. And you're being put in a situation where if you live in public housing, guess what you don't have, Eva? You don't have a utility bill. If you make less than $30,000 a year, three of the 10, 30% of that population doesn't have a smartphone. And 40% of them don't have broadband. I, it, none of this makes sense to me. Yeah. I, I want to come back to something you just, actually a couple of things you just mentioned. One is the, this concept of friction. But I want to, before we leave here, Eva, I know we just did a study that talked about specifically the impact on consumers um, during the pandemic year. We, we, we do a much larger study on the general impacts non-financial largely, but the general impacts on identity crime victims. But we did a specific look at at the pandemic year. 
Um, when you look at those numbers and you and the, what we've been talking about so far, can you connect those together? Do, do, is is the is the impact really disproportionate? Well, I think it's really important to just talk about the impact in general because people forget that this is actually a traumatic experience. Um, you know, to Woody's point, these are folks that are needing resources and they can't get them because they're a crime victim. And so when we conduct this survey, we ask about more than just the uh, how much time did you spend and how much money did you lose? Because you're not getting the full picture when that's all that you're focused on. Those things are important, of course, but they're not the whole story. And when we looked at the the pre-pandemic victims, they, you know, 83% actually reported an inability to rent an apartment or find housing. 76% said they felt violated. And this was the staggering, the number that just uh, made, took my breath away, really. The 10%, the largest percentage in the history of us doing this study, reported that they were feeling suicidal. That's pre-pandemic. Then we go into the folks that were dealing with these more pandemic-related um, identity crimes were just experiencing the identity crime during the pandemic, and 40% were unable to pay their routine bills. 33% didn't have enough money for necessities, necessities like food and utilities. And on top of all of that, the re-victimization rates keep increasing. So in our previous studies, and the, in the last one, it was 21% of folks that reported they were a previous victim. And in this most recent study, 28%. So three out of 10 people that we talked to have had this happen to them before. How are they supposed to feel secure and, and not anxious or not violated? I mean, it, it's becoming this um, sort of part of life. I'm just going to have to recover my identity periodically so that I can get my basic needs met. And to Woody's point, we can do better. That's absolutely unacceptable. Well, yeah, let's talk I, about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Woody. I was going to say, those are shocking. And I, I really appreciate that, especially the emotional impact it has on individuals and you know how they feel relative to being able to meet the needs of their family. And, and that's not being discussed. And it, it's a very traumatic experience to have to explain to a child that you have to wait two or three weeks because for some reason you don't have a phone bill or a utility bill or that you don't have um, a document. Like, how does that happen, right? That's why, you know, we, um, as well as other companies in the space, have been pushing this notion of the identity digital lock. Why can't government do what the private sector has done to eradicate this problem. It's not a new problem. Uh, to Eva's earlier point, uh, identity theft and these breaches have been going on for over a decade now, right? There just seems to be a lot of confusion in the market right now about um, the use of uh, certifications like 800-62-63 for NIST and what that means relative to stopping fraud. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. NIST is a framework for stopping fraud. NIST certainly isn't uh, the be-all in how to stop the fraud. In order to stop the fraud, you need data. Let's drill down on that for just a second. We've got just a couple of minutes left here. But I do want to, to talk about this concept you, you brought up earlier, friction, which is basically you know, 
um, we want to make transactions easy. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes there can be bad outcomes because we don't do the kind of due diligence that we that we we might otherwise do. And in this particular circumstance we're in right now, a lot of the states relaxed their authentication or you know or removed them entirely because they were trying to get benefits into people's hands quickly. And that's a very laudable, laudable goal. But when we start looking about how do we fix this system we're in today, the situation we're in today, where you can't rely on the the data that we ride on for 20 years, um, which was basically wallet data to authenticate somebody. What is it we really need to be doing now? And are there downsides? Because information obviously can be used for good, but it can be also uh, used for, for harmful impact. So how do we make sure that doesn't happen when we build this new kind of authentication that we're talking about? Right. Yeah. That, that, that's a great question, right? Be, you know, part of what I've said is that the fraudsters continue to evolve. So what worked, you know, 10 years ago certainly doesn't work today. So a good example is uh, Lexus was one of the first to introduce an auto wallet quiz. That was highly effective for a number of years. Quite frankly, the auto wallet quiz um, is maybe a layer that you might want to put in, but the tools today include device assessment with a contributory database. It turns out that the fraudsters particularly the international ones, use the same device over and over again. And once you capture it as fraudulent, um, you can stop it. And there's more information on that phone or on your computer laptop or your iPad um, than there is in a droplet of your DNA. The, the, The second is email analytics and making sure that you're looking at the email addresses, understanding where they've come from, how they've been used, and also Um, And I would tell every single person listening, what are you doing to make sure you're stopping the tumbling, Uh, especially with the Google email, the Gmail addresses? We have seen in in our states probably 70% of the time, that's one of the ways that they were being frauded. They were being, they were taking advantage of that service within uh, Gmail that allows you to forward email addresses, but make them look like they're similar. And then the third thing is... um, you know, public record content. I think one of the best examples that, that's gone on here is Governor Devine, who is the governor of the great state of Ohio, somehow managed to get unemployment insurance benefits in the state of California. Well, all you would have had to have done is look in public records, and you would have very quickly noticed the governor of Ohio does not live in the state of California, and the address that the fraudsters used didn't even exist in California. But those three things stacked together, and I Identity, digital lock, taking advantage of the digital exhaust that we leave is the wave of the future. It's what stops it right now. And, you know, part of what I appreciate about um, uh, Eva and Eva's organization is the education they provide to both consumers and to government agencies on on how to combat this. Um, Because, you know, as I've said previously, this isn't a fraud problem anymore. This is a national security issue. $250 billion went to the Russians, the Chinese, the Nigerians, and now the Romanians are joining in on the party. 70% of that money went there. What are they using it for? Right? And not to mention the damage it's doing to consumers who are in situations where they can't get benefits, as well as 
uh, if my identity is stolen and then all of a sudden I realize I've got a 1099G form um, in the mail from the IRS asking me to pay taxes on a benefit that I never received, I, I don't get it. And we're getting those calls, Woody. We, we knew it was coming. And of course, victims are calling us very confused. I mean, that's the other piece of it, too, is we talk about this day in and day out. We understand these things. But your average person who's just living their life gets a 1099G. They've never seen one before. They don't even know what it is, much less what, what do I do about it? And we have to do a better job educating people um, when they need us most. You know, when they need us, where do I go to get help? And and they, unfortunately, with the, the dearth of resources, there, there aren't a lot of places that they can go. Well, I, I mean, and, and think about that. You know, that's why you guys exist to help. But then the pull through on that is you got to call the police department. You got to file a police report. Then you got to notify all the credit bureaus. You got to freeze your credit. And then you have to notify the federal uh, IRS as well as your state um tax agency to let them know that this was all incorrect. This takes huge amounts of resources and time from individuals, many of which don't have the time or the expertise to navigate those complicated systems. Eva, Woody, outstanding conversation. We're going to give people a a source of where they can go for assistance here in just a second, but I want to thank you for your time today and and for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate um, Eva and your organization and all the wonderful work that you guys do. Thanks, Woody. You can learn more about identity fraud as well as get help if you have been the victim of an identity crime by visiting the ITRC's website at idtheftcenter.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our emails that alert you to the latest scams, monthly data breach updates, and tips to protect your identity. You can also link off to one of our expert advisors who can help you with the resources you need to recover your identity. Be sure and join us next week for our weekly breach breakdown podcast and next month for another episode of the Fraudian Slip. Thanks for listening.